the good news is there are green shoots here. There are signs of this appearing and Carol was touching upon it in hers. But the way I see it, particularly with the, the new curriculum coming in, it's coming in with the principle of responsibility, this aspect of being responsible in your practice, being responsible and reviewing your purpose and values. Again, you're always up against the aspect of greenwashing and how deeply integrated this becomes. It is calling for a re-examination of purpose and values and just to make it just a little bit more practical. Throughout history, the great questions have been asked and great research has been undertaken, always expanding the territory of the known by shining a light into the unknown. Where is that cutting edge today? And can a community of people from all over the world, each carrying their own unique journey of discovery, come together to inquire at the edge of purposeful evolution through conversation? At Portals of Perception, we think it is possible, and we hope that you will choose to be a part of this exploration. It's remarkable in a digital age where the world is light years ahead of life in the 18th century that a fundamental cultural institution hasn't changed its core mission substantially since the Industrial Revolution. What we know as public education, from preschool to college, has helped elevate life and the collective standard of living in astounding ways over the past 200 years. Its guiding vision has remained virtually unchanged. Prepare human beings to, essentially, get a job and earn a living, to become living generators in the powerful engines that keep the world's economies humming. But as the world grapples with environmental and social crises, is it time for public education to again elevate the common good by refocusing its mission and raising its sights? to see human possibility as more than just economic assets. Imagine a school where a learning ecosystem helps liberate natural intelligence and that supports the purposes of life and living. Join Aviv Shahar for the future of education. This is a conversation about the future of education. The central portals inquiry we explore in all the core domains of life is where does the future come from? Implicit in this is a co-creative search into what kind of a future is it and how can we become enlightened agents and facilitators for regenerative possibilities where we all can become healthier, wiser and more fully alive. Education is at the heart of these inquiries because unlocking humanity's regenerative potential begins with educational ecologies that support our creative and renewal capacities. We're here today with Carol Wilczynska and Ola Kelleher, and I'd like to invite you to first introduce yourself and briefly share what brought you to work in the educational space. Hello, Aviv. Hello, Ola. Really good to be here today and to talk with you about a passionate endeavor that I've walked into. And I say walk into because it was a matter of taking natural abilities, being recognized for those natural abilities, and then working in an environment I never thought 
when I was very young I would ever enter. One of the aspects that was intriguing to people that first met me was that I was able to see what people needed and was able to communicate that clearly, be it in a work environment or be it in a mentoring environment. I was asked to work at Auckland University of Technology. And one of the reasons that was given way back a very long time ago, in 1995, can you come and help us do this? We don't seem to have the abilities. And when people watched what I did, they realized that there was something that I was able to pass on to people, not necessarily from the standpoint of technology or academia, but the fact that I helped people find their way. This, of course, was something I never knew that was present from this life to another life. So my role is in art and design. I've been teaching in that role for 25 years, and I continue to do so today. And that's just a small intro. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Orla Kelleher. Carol, really lovely to hear how you entered higher education. For me, it was also a very unplanned development later on in my life because I started work as a marine biologist, environmental scientist. And even then, I was really concerned about the fate of the planet. And at a certain point, I felt my life wasn't quite on the track it meant to be. And at the time, I was really experiencing, really for the first time, the full impact of personal growth and all the dimensions it can be to be human. So it caused me to change course. I didn't know where I was going to go, actually. I kind of went on a bit of an odyssey. But a few organic, serendipitous happenings. And I ended up, first of all, developing a program for young children around natural principles of science and education. And then I did some work for young leaders in secondary school. And then that got me to the point where I felt that I really wanted to move into this area of teaching, coaching, facilitation. So I set up my own training and facilitation business. And then it was very curious, but the recession hit, I needed to change again. And again, another serendipitous happening. And I ended up taking a job in a university, again, something I'd never planned to do. But it was a very curious role. It allowed me to be a bridge between academia and world of business, creating what I hope would be um, impactful programs that very much focused on personal growth, leadership development. And that role evolved to today where now I'm leading on bringing in a new curriculum to do with environmental sustainability and really new curriculum in response to the convergent global crises. So quite a journey, but this is where I've ended up. Wonderful. So before we dive into the challenges and the transformational potential of the current education system, let me simply ask you what brings up in you joy, what energizes you for all the many things you do in the busy work life, what brings you joy, what energizes you? I'm one of the people that keeps in contact with those who have been through the programs that I teach. And it's not from a role that is something that is enforced on me or something that I've been asked to do. It's wonderful that when I hear from these people who have been through the program, they come back and they say, you know what you said five years ago, it's true. I've discovered it for myself. Or 
I've been doing this work with this community and it's really, I'm really finding the skills that I learned from you has helped me to be able to communicate and do the work that they need. Or I'm going into new roles and I've been offered three different jobs. What do you think? And it's almost as though people are always searching for what they want from out of their educational experience because the curriculum is set to a certain diversity, but it's not until the people find their way that they know where their direction is going in any kind of career or any kind of recognition as to how they can develop as individuals. And the more and more that they go through that process, the more that they realize that what they thought they were going to do going into higher education has slightly changed. So instead of making things that sell product, they end up developing systems that help communities. And so their way of thinking completely changes. And it's not necessarily from my input, but it's from the ability to talk through big ideas, what we call wicked problems, and many of the life aspects that are forced upon them because of what is happening. And of course, I've seen many changes in the time that I've been involved with the department and with the school that I'm associated with. So it's always a challenge. And I suppose that the challenge is not necessarily sought, but it actually unfolds in front of you. And you find ways, you find the ways to help make it logical in one sense, but also find a way around any problems that may or may not have resolved or come to light when they first appeared. Well, part of what I hear is that you find joy and gratification or energy in the longitudinal impact when you stay in touch with people that you touch through your program and you see the second, third, fourth wave of how each and react in their life when they find challenges and opportunities. So, yeah, please, Ola. Yeah, what gives me joy is very much focused around helping people become conscious of their own natural capabilities. And typically there's always a leadership aspect to the work that I do. And I really enjoy that because it allows us to enter the space around the inner assembly of leadership. And when people realize that they can start to choose the qualities that they have as leaders, that they can build an inner compass, that they can start to set their principles, something that will keep them to account. What gives me joy is when that begins to happen in them, the growth I see. And it's not just a growth in them, it's the growth that happens in their team. When they share with me how the team is transforming, how there's this new life, this new energy, it causes a renewal. And people are often very cynical and disillusioned and it's hard to find meaning in work. But when people realize that they can find the meaning within themselves and that there is this incredible human faculty and that they are there to learn how to take charge over their lives by building that inner assembly, that really gives me joy. And I think what gives me energy is new practice. It's the bringing in of new and how to address problems from the perspective of putting things right and often putting things right in the work or world circumstances, often being able to bring humanity back into the fore. You can be even more effective if, for example, you have a line manager who you can trust is fair, yeah, brings out the best in you. So for me, it's the awakening of consciousness within a person as to their own natural capability 
and the growing of the person within that. Yeah, that's what gives me joy. So with those threads, I'd like us to begin to nudge into what do you see to be the challenges of education and the challenges of higher education? And I sense that even in what you started to develop, there is the first hint when you spoke to the fact that people often find it difficult to get the sense of meaning out there in the world and your hint, your clue is search for meaning not out there but inside here in relation to what is out there. So so let's have that as a scaffold as we nudge into this because I'd like to ask it in in the open-ended way and most expanded way. What do you see to be the challenges of education? And I know we could do a laundry list that will run for an hour on this. But at a high level, if you need to describe what for you is the most critical challenge, how would you describe it? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start with this one. And I'd like to look at three aspects, but the first being the purpose of education. Because typically the purpose of education, and up until Today, it's beginning to shift because of the global crisis, but the purpose of education since it became mainstream, which was the time of the Industrial Revolution, is to uh, get a job, to be an effective economic unit. So if you look at the time when education became accessible to all, which was part of the Industrial Revolution, the downside to that is the purpose of that industrialized approach was actually to mass produced to create wealth, to create economics. It wasn't to actually cultivate the faculty of the human. So there was the term, the industrialized feeding schools, where a person would go from the school to the door of the factory. And even today, the premise of education, which is now having to be revised, but when I joined, it was very much here, trying to educate people to be employable. Now, if you look at what's happening today, you have the realization that we have to address the global crises and there's whole lessons learned of why we've got there. And one of those lessons, again, can be traced back again to that industrialized approach to education because what happened, because that was the, you could say, the prevailing influence, it caused a systemized approach to education. So the approach itself was almost reminiscent of a factory approach. And if you talk to any systems engineer, once you design a system, it is itself robotic. And I'm sure Carol will agree with me, but the higher education system is such a rigid system. And what came with that systemized approach was rote learning and the rigidity of the system at the time, impersonalized approach to education, which is, again, a very different, very big departure from the evolution of the human in terms of its natural capability. And it's also a disconnect with the natural world. So you become disconnected. The model itself is an artificial model. Therefore, it's not subject to the natural principles in nature that would keep it in a sustainable way. So you can trace many of these things back to that approach and leading to the kind of disconnected, systemized approach where we do really need to look at the purpose of education. And we are being forced to now, but it's, it's a very key aspect. And even the fact that we use terms such as real world learning in higher education is an indication we're not working within a live, living, evolving context, which is how education, in my view, ought to be. So that was point one. And it's an interesting conversation as the both of us are in different hemispheres. 
we have a completely different way of thinking about education. And from the standpoint of a university for a changing world, which has been a slogan that has been used for over 20 years, the place that I work is one of the leading universities now because they realized that they needed to change. They needed to change because of this problem with the rote learning that was forcing people to think the only reason they're going to higher education is to get a job. But it's not necessary that now because of the practice-led environment that we have. So practice-led means that the practice that the students develop are allowing them to see what potential in everything that they do. So in the past, yes, definitely rote learning. With new technologies and things like this, the change had to come in. Everybody's using the same tools. How do we actually allow them to become leaders in themselves? And I can see that the importation of the collegial high learning from universities in Europe, the change has come in this country in New Zealand is that we need to be more aware of what natural learning is for each person. So we have certain systems that are beginning to be at forefront of taking on board, having the, what we would call the belief that the person is at that higher education for a reason. And the reason being that they will go and help to build communities. So it's more to do with, the, especially in the area that I am in, is design for good. Design for good to do with what makes things better, not what continues to build the status quo. So I think there is a shift that's occurring and it's kind of being kept into the systems of higher education because of the way that the system runs. And I agree with Ola about that. And so when the two areas clash, it's obvious because you get these highly, highly motivated people that go through higher education and they don't fit the square or they don't fit the round peg or they don't fit whatever shape something's been written about in the past. So yes, the purpose of education is to help the person discover what potential they have. And if a government says we need 10,000 scientists, then the funding goes towards building the science, the practical science. If the government says we need $20 million invested in people who are good at technologies, that's the direction. So that's the system, yes. But you're always going to get those mavericks who go because they just know they need to be there, but they don't know why they're there. And it's really interesting, yeah. So there is a curious divergence between your experiences and, and yet you're both raising the the purpose of the education system. And, and I guess if, if we brought together any hundred teachers in, from a collection of countries and we asked them this very question, which is what is the purpose of education, we probably will get a range of, of answers. And I'm guessing that some will offer the answer that the purpose of education is to prepare people for their life. And based on what you're describing we would say that's an okay answer only in that it's only removed one or two steps from first principle rather than three or four steps from first principle. Because if the answer is the purpose of education is to get you in a position where you'll get a high-paying job, 
and there is nothing wrong with high-paying job, but if we say that that is the purpose of education, as you're offering, it is three or four steps removed from asking what are the purposes of life and living, and therefore how can we configure a whole person, whole planet educational experience that will support these purposes, and that inquiry will perhaps lead us more on the path of a first principle consideration about education. And so I, I do wonder really where we are in on this continuum in the big picture. And it sounds like at least the experience you're having, Carol, in, in New Zealand is you're on the frontier of that development, of that realignment that's taking place. We would hope so. But as it's already been pointed out by Ola, we have the problem. Most universities are funded by government in this country. It might not necessarily be the same in other countries like the US. But I would say that the fundamental problems that we encounter is, do the universities get the funding they need to develop the programs that are required? And most of the evidence is that most of the students would wish to go into research into an area that was benefiting the community. I suppose one of the questions that we ask all the time is, what kind of work are you wanting to do? And most of the time, I just want to do this or that. And I'm being very vague in that because I don't want to name specific industries because it puts a limitation on what we might be able to discuss here. But if I say, I have a person who's from Russia who chose to come to New Zealand because they said it was safe. And they wanted to then live in New Zealand after they graduate. Fine, if you can do that. So what happens to that person? Do they find something that is similar to their culture? No, it's impossible in New Zealand. But what they want to do is provide something that will be beneficial to the community. So they go and create narratives that help to say something to the public. Or they might go and design something that helps a process in a hospital because hospitals are needing to be updated because of what's been happening over the last two and a half years in the global pandemic. Or they devise a way to communicate highly stressed and elevated public to understand what's going on in a certain new development in government policy or things like this. So the idea of wanting to change or recognizing that there is aspects that are forcing change. How do we offer ways for our students who want to come and study to be aware that they need to be, as Ola says, true to themselves, put in the value and see what's been asked to be said, have the wisdom to understand that they have a voice in this, and then be able to stand up and say, I don't think you can do it like that. Let's mm -hmm. try it this way. And I suppose another aspect of the purpose of education is allowing people to know that they have a voice and they can become confident in anything that they attempt and know that people will listen, not because they demand it, but because they have ideas that are worth listening to. So you're raising several themes to do with people finding their voice through their education, people discovering their natural talent. And Ola spoke to this idea of unlocking their leadership potential and their capacity to influence and shape the world. I want to, for a minute, circle back before we develop these themes 
to the framing, Ola, that you offered, where you said, well, we're looking at a system that essentially was established in the Industrial Revolution and therefore solved and optimized the two objectives, especially with early education, keep the children busy while the parents went to work in the factories and then make them ready to be the next generation of factory workers. And if we take a step back and look at it even in a broader context, we can propose that the crowning achievement of the modern project or modernity project has largely been the establishment of institutions, legal institutions, economic institutions, global institutions, media institutions, geopolitical institutions, and educational institutions, universities. You're both working in universities. And this is great in the sense that those institutions, for a couple of centuries, brought to us tremendous goodness and truth and beauty. What you are describing, however, is how what started to become increasingly difficult and challenging, maybe through the second half of the 20th century, increasingly we saw what we can describe as institutional capture, the syndrome of institutional capture to mean the institution no longer support the original purpose it was established for, but is being driven by its own second principle agenda, economic agenda, or prestige agenda, or whatever else. So I think I'm regrounding the bigger story you framed because the implicit thing in what you said, Ola, was, I would say it in these words, and you correct me, you're actually saying education right from the get-go, in the way we know it, already started to remove. There is a built-in displacement. We started in the first place, removed from the natural alignment to the liberation of the human potential. And now we're dealing with the secondary and tertiary consequences of that. So first, what would you add to this picture? We're still in the diagnostic side of the challenge, the problem, and what other challenges do we need to frame? And then I'd like to re-engage with the inquiry of releasing and unleashing talent and the natural brilliance of people. So please, Ola. Yes. So up until the Industrial Revolution began, learning was primarily accessible to either the privileged, those in religious orders, or carried out within the family, like family learning or learning a trade on the farm. And that was how learning was happened. But in that learning, take the learning on the farm side, you were learning through connections with other people. You were learning values. You were learning what to do, what not to do. You were learning consequences of action. You were learning what's right, what's wrong. You were learning how to be of value within an interdependent community. So if you contrast that to a system which is based on this aspect of robotic production, the, the human sentiments just aren't in the design. And having worked as a marine scientist or as a designer, it has to be within the design. Now, I think the consequences of it not being in the design is, I think, one of the reasons why we are where we are from an environmental global warming situation, where the learning that's been carried out hasn't been connected into the natural, the bigger ecology in which we live and operate. So, and even if you think about disciplines, they're siloed. They're looking at business in the context of business, but what about business in the context of the consequence of those operations on the planet, on others, and other parts of the universe of the planet? 
And those considerations are now being called up. So the questions around why we are in the place we are, they've gone back to look, certainly in the area of which I work, which is business, they've gone back and looked and said, well, what is in the curriculum that has led to the financial scandals, the banking scandals, the lack of response to global warming, the lack of environmental sustainability within community, within business practice. So you can see, if you look at the education, one of the things my own personal belief is that well, one of the challenges with that is people have been siloed into their topic, but without understanding the living world in which that is inactive and therefore not seeing the consequences until now. And that's another aspect of a robotic system. Whereas if you're in a natural dynamic, connected in with what's moving around you, you're absorbing, you're seeing, you're feeling, and your experience of what you're learning is becoming part of you. Whereas there's still that cognitive bias. And I can say it's still there because I've been trying to bring in new curriculum around embedding new values, such as environmental sustainability. And Cara would be glad, social responsibility, so that everything that's happening is part of being of service to a greater world. It's one of the things we're doing is embedding the sustainable development goal within our curriculum. So it's introducing the principle of working towards addressing global issues, which are all the principles. But going back to the issue, I think we're still having to take into account that we have an education paradigm that came, that arose from that particular set of origins. So if you look at it from that standpoint, you can understand why we've ended up in the situation we've ended up in. Yeah, so disconnected. So at the personal level, the story you're telling describes why one of the byproducts is we are now seeing more and more students, teachers, people largely in society are disembodied. We are a society of disembodied people. We are in our heads, not in our hearts. And you're saying that is a result of a robotic education system that separated the learning of skills and the learning of head facts from the natural learning of feeling, intuition, virtues in the behavioral and character formation. That breakdown, that separation led to one, disembodied people who are mostly in their heads and on the internet. Hopefully some of them are watching this conversation. And secondarily to a system that is siloed is optimized to the silo of the silo of the silo and is never oriented in the first place in its formation to recognize that it is part of a part of a part of something greater inside of which there is the natural alignment of a living system. So we are seeing both the individual consequences and the systemic consequences. So now that we are describing that and the way that represents it. And you go to work in those systems and encounter that heaviness and the frustration and the pain of that. And you are seeking to bring into it those passions that you articulate, promoting and encouraging the natural talent of people, promoting and encouraging integrated natural alignment. So say more about how are you seeing or envisioning those frontiers of reintegration and re-naturalization, how are they appearing? How can they appear? Well, the good news is there are green shoots here. There are signs of this appearing. And Carol was touching upon it in hers. But the way I see it, particularly with the, the new curriculum coming in, 
it's coming in with the principle of responsibility, this aspect of being responsible in your practice, being responsible and reviewing your purpose and values. Again, you're always up against the aspect of greenwashing and how deeply integrated this becomes. It is calling for a re-examination of purpose and values. And just to make it just a little bit more practical, if you take, for example, the goal of trying to get to containing global warming between one and a half to two degrees, one of the key things countries have set are policies to get to net zero in terms of carbon emission. But if you look at the curriculum around that, what that is causing people to to do in a new way is to look at the way we live. What's the impact of it? What are our values? What are our values in relationship to the planet that we live on? And for me, it raises three fundamental questions at the heart, because this is sitting upon something very core, which is what is our relationship to the planet? Because how could we have got what sustains us into this situation? The second is, what is this calling for in terms of a re-examination of human purpose and human values? Particularly at the time we are being called to make change within the next 20 to 30 years. Change that, if it's successful, can, well, let's say what we do in the next 10 to 30 years is going to determine the fate of the planet and the fate of future generations for thousands of years. So it's a very, very, very critical window where there is a new influence coming in saying, look, are we aware we can see the line from which of history from which we've come? We can see the consequences of industrialized actions. We can see the consequences of having models that didn't have the values in it, such as values for the environment, values for the people on the planet. But these are all coming in. There's even a call for new kinds of consciousness. There's a recognition there is a new kinds of consciousness needed. And in terms of the, let's say, lack of embodied learning, Again, I work on the side of practice a bit like Carl. So we've always been embedding our learning through action, through change. That's a core part. But this is going further. In the learning outcomes, it's moving beyond cognitive into learning outcomes that are focused around what they would call social emotional. But basically, can you feel it? Can you sense it? What's your position about it? What choices are you going to make here? What are your values? What are the deeper values that you need to hold to? And then it's also looking at behavioral change. So that's new. You know, now other parts of the curriculum haven't caught up with it. Like if you go to Mark, you're not marking on those things. You're still marking on the knowledge of authors, journals, articles, references, and your ability to critique one author against another. You're still doing that. But it is trying to come in. Last week I was on a call where there was a global call and they were looking at five different ways to embed nature in education. And on that call, there were it was being pioneered by students, but there was government ministers, new educators, and they were all looking at how to reconnect us back into nature. Then there's the focus on transdisciplinary, the recognition that we cannot solve any of these issues through one discipline. We need to look at things inside of bringing it back to wholeness. Yeah. So I would say we are touching into a return to wholeness in terms of deeper human values and purpose reconnecting into whole person learning you know we can't do it from the brain reasoning what does your gut say about it what does your intuition say about it and in the end no one's going to make change unless they care about it that's the facts so we've got to have a curriculum that allows people to feel and restore that sense of awe wonder and magic about life and yeah so i would say those are the green shoots coming in it's the translation of that. Will it get translated into 
deeper review of education that's needed? Or will it become a compliance exercise, for example? Yeah, which you could easily do also. Yeah. I think it's really interesting what you're saying because you're identifying what students are wanting, but they might not be able to articulate it. Exactly. So they go into higher education looking for that environment because they know that something's not quite right. They know that what they're doing each and every day to the time they step through the door or through the computer screen, that what they've learned isn't quite right. So when they start learning individual topics, as they choose to go into these different areas of education, they soon realize that their tutors are telling them, you need to be observant. You need to take note of what is happening around you. You need to write this down. You need to take account of everything that you're thinking of. And how are you going to then embed that into what you're doing? The biggest issue is is that they don't know how to feel. They don't know how to see. They don't know how to recognize what is required. So there's this huge training in the first year of how do I let go of my preconceived ideas of what learning is so I can be open enough to learn something new and not mind that I don't know it at the moment. So for students to want to then turn around and say, we need to have better communications with these individuals who are the leaders currently, so we can learn and stand on their shoulders when it's our turn to lead. So I think all the things that you're saying is true, but we also have the problem that a lot of people don't know why they're in higher education to Mm. start with. And that's really another issue that's coming into play here. Because in the past, as you've mentioned, in other countries, that has been the core reason why people went to higher education. In this country, it's not necessarily the same, but they have the sense we need to go there to learn. And it's almost as though people aren't really sure what they're learning. So there's this element of, I know that I need something new. I know I need to be better. I know I need to help with the development of something so it's a better world. And it doesn't matter what subject it is. What is it? And I agree with this introduction of rote learning. They're realizing that everybody has the same tools, but what are they doing with those tools? Yeah. So it's their thinking, their creativity and their imagination that needs to be part of the learning. And not everybody wants that. Not everybody wants to actually have that challenge because it's hard. In the work I get to do with large companies, I often propose the metaphor because people struggle with how can you cause a large systemic change? What are the conditions that will enable large systemic change, whether you're looking at at an organization of 15,000 people or whether you're looking at an organization of 150,000 people, whether it's a company or whether it's an educational institution. And I like to describe the anatomy of cloud formation. And you have a cloud forming in the sky when you have a composition of several conditions. You need to have a nucleus of some sort around which the formation can begin, and then you need to have the right climate and the sufficient humidity and such, and the cloud begins to form. And once the cloud begins to form, it begins to create its own momentum in its own formation. And I think that it's like that in institutional 
an organizational change, you've got to find the nucleus. Sometimes, rarely, the change will come from the top because the top are number one people that have been entrenched in the institution for a very long time. Number two, this is their last iteration, so they are not always invested in change. Sometimes they would want to be transformational, but a lot of the time they don't. And thirdly, they are often beholden and answerable to other economic and environmental pressures and persuasions. So if you follow that rationale, you'd say often where an institution, whether it's a for-profit company or an educational institution where the change can occur is somewhere in the middle where there are a few people who bring a new level of consciousness and they push back to carve for themselves enough space and they begin to work on change. Now, what I just heard from what you were describing, Ola, is encouraging in the sense that you were describing a network phenomenon with people from different institutions and government officials in a unified search. I'm curious what initiated the search and when the inquiry is how to bring nature more into the education, how deep is that inquiry? I'd leave that for you to address. What I want you both to address alongside that is how and what do you see can address the following challenge, which I think is what Carol just started to speak to. If we are to see change, and if part of the change is all as you're describing, integrating head knowledge with values-based, intuition-based, behavioral-based, system-based knowledge, you need to have different teachers that are wired differently, that are able to inquire differently, that are called by a different purpose. Are you seeing these teachers? How are teachers going to be transformed or lead these transformations firstly in themselves and then for the system at large? So I framed a lot there. I'll let you both take this and take it wherever you want, please. Well, it's a great question and I'm currently grappling with it actually because I'm leading on change now across two colleges, 50% of the university. And to put it into context, six years ago, it was a flat no, no traction whatsoever. But now it's in the strategy. And again, what was really helpful was one individuals, as you said, who were all leading on this in their own ways. And what happened is we connected and formed a critical mass, which kind of helped promote it. But then what also helped was the external shifts, which, for example, I'm part of what's called the UN Principles of Responsible Management Education. And that we were able to kind of use that as the case, but we had to build a case and say, but look, this is why we need to make change. This is where it's heading. These are the consequences if you don't change. And here are some brilliant examples of where it is happening. Yeah. So that's the first. In terms of then the kind of work with trying to change the teaching, that is a challenge because you're right. Even with my own program team, we have a different stance. We are saying we're not there to be the knowledge holders were there to facilitate the process of learning. So that's a, a pivotal shift. Yeah. Now we do have to get the new knowledge because there is very new emerging curriculum. So you've got to be very current with what's happening and to be able to bring that forward. But there's also what I'm trying to bring in are different ways of thinking, what I would call consequential thinking. Yeah. Fundamental reasoning, because you've got to get people to understand how we've got here. So therefore, what is the change we need to have happen? So the, the shift is going from, let's say, being the knowledge holder, because 
practice is often ahead of our education, as one of my doctorate students said to me. She said, well, practice is always ahead of our education. So what you're trying to bring is that blend of practice, educators, students, researchers, in the formulation of inquiry and learning, and not come from the rope, but come from, well, okay, how do you make decision? Coming from the principles of do no harm to the planet and preserve life. Where do you go with that? And how do you do that and run a viable business? So you have to work, stay with people through that process. So for teachers to make that change, I think you're talking about an authenticity, a focus around personal growth, an ability to be on the edge in the process, to work live, to be able to surface the polarities, the be able to give guide people on when triggers are coming out in the process, to be able to surface the nature of the process as much as what's been said. Yeah. So it is a shift in skills, but it's also that won't happen unless we as educators understand why we need to make the change and are living the change ourselves. You're describing an inquiry-based, purpose-inspired, developmentally driven education. Yes, that's going to be the attempt, yeah. Please, Carol. I remember a workshop that I was involved with, which was bringing in design leaders from around New Zealand. And there was this big workshop that was, can you find a way to describe what you love to do? That was the first question, which kind of like floored all the students who were all third year students. And they were going, we don't understand what you're asking us, (laughs) which was quite funny in itself. And then the next one was, what do you want to do that will not cause harm? That was the second question. And it was interesting that the love and cause no harm was the most important aspects that were discussed. So all the students got really inspired in that sense that, what do you mean? We could do something to help that? What do you mean? We might be able to go out and produce materials that would help to educate others. And we were sitting there and one of the things that I said What is it that you have wanted to do your entire life and never had the courage to do it? And most people that go into higher education don't realize that we're always going to ask them challenging questions. And then they eventually will find out when they go and start working, maybe for a company or maybe do further research in a well-being lab that has been set up to help hospitals that they can contribute to better ways of managing systems, which is probably one of the biggest issues that you've been talking about, Ola, is managing systems. Then, as you said, identifying the system and then realizing if we just change one thing that would be improved. And that's the thing. Sometimes it's thought of as a big challenge, but it's not if everybody actually is in agreement. So transitional change, yes. Multidisciplinary, yes. For the teaching to change requires multiple people. The teams of teaching and not individuals teaching is really a large investment at the moment. And also the aspect of allowing the students to choose other disciplines along with their majors is another aspect. So if Ola is involved mainly with postgraduate work, etc., I'm the person that's mainly involved with getting students to that point of wanting to do that so it's interesting in the way that things have had to change but I still see the burden of systems that were set up in the past that kind of whip you back into 
well, now you have to change your curriculum because they have to fit into this amount of hours. And education does not stop at five in the afternoon. It continues 24 hours. It is nonstop when we're actually considering better ways of preparing people for the future. And that's really the thing I think that you're touching on here, Ola yeah. and Aviv. The future, what is it actually seeking? Well, so let's take this segue from you. And in our last round, ask the daring question about the future and ask you to imagine 2040, so almost 20 years into the future. If we did think 20 years, it'll be 2042. And ask you to describe an idealized picture of the future for you. What do you dare imagine? And part of that is, and I'm specifically, I'm going to be defiant with the word utopian because I don't think it's utopian. I think it's a way of prototyping the future in our mind today such that we create the imaginal cell out of which we can birth this future. Because part of the message I'm getting from the two of you today is there is now a different dynamic at play, different process is emerging. It is nevertheless encountering huge institutional weight. Partly the acceleration will be defined by A, externalities. What kind of planetary crises will we see that will force our hands quicker? And in the absence of that, what kind of an acceleration from within through truly purpose-inspired, evolutionarily-based leadership, leadership that wants to see the human experiment coming through an evolutionary process and recognizing that education is where it begins and where it continues. So those are the accelerants, the external and and the internal. And, And I'm going to ask you to imagine out loud education in 2040 or 2042, because I believe that's part of the exercise we need to be in. What is it we imagine 20 years into the future? And then how can we accelerate that and forward into the future in the next five, 10 years? So who is ready to take this state of the future, please? Description. Alex, go for it. You want to? No, you go for it. Yes, and thank you for the question. So if we say that today... Can I stop you there and actually ask you to do it in the form of a practice? Yes, please. The beginning, (laughs) this first sentence is, it's 2042, and here is what I see. And you describe it in the present perfect. That's, by the way, what I do with leadership team when I facilitate transformative stories. We step into the future and we describe it in the present perfect. Yeah. Which days are we again? 2042? Please, please. (laughs) Okay. So it's 2042. And there is a, yes, there is a regular gathering of young leaders happening on a campus, which itself is very much in the countryside. And when you walk to where the leaders are having their leadership training, or education is a dome which itself is covered in greenery and it's very much part of the natural landscape. And when you walk into the building itself, it is a very organic shape, it's dome shaped, and there is a very high dome and there's a centered table, a round table. And what happens in this particular room, which is called the conclave, is that this is where leaders come to look to really try and stretch their thinking inside of new ways of leading and new ways of government. Now, tonight's session is focused around how to deal with the very pressing issue of, for example, food shortage 
between a number of neighbouring countries. The young leaders have already been trained on the facts and legalities of that situation. But now what is happening is a whole process around how can we govern in a way that whatever decision we make is a step forward for humanity? How can we come to new ways of governing that we know is going to preserve the environmental health and well-being of those countries? And how do we take into account various different dynamics in terms of justice, in terms of fairness, in terms of the various different exigencies and crises? And those young leaders are being tasked to look at new ways. And the essential premise of, let's say, where they get rewarded is if they can find new ways of governing, that will be a step forward. Because in 2042, what they've realised is that the most important thing, if you're producing a politician, is the qualities they have. Can you trust them? What is their service ethos? Can they manage their ego? Where are they going to draw their wisdom from? So as part of this process, there'll be different functionaries in that group. One will be to draw from examples of how food shortage is managed in nature because it's always managed in a much more live, intelligent way. Another person is drawing from looking at the polarities, trying to keep the process neutral so that there is clear-headedness. Another person is taking up the function of the aspect of justice. How does that play out across all the different players? And the role of the teacher is by way of holding the space for that. And then if there is, you know, just keeping things on track. But the premise is, the kind of central premise of education in 2042 is that it's focused around what the human race can become in terms of its humanity. World citizenship is not simply a surface term. It has a character, a set of principles, a set of values that go beyond religion, creed, ethnicity, geographic boundary. It's something around which all can gather. And the premise of young leaders is to understand that that is their function as leaders, is to move that forward both in terms of capability, effectiveness, but overall caliber of humanity. Yeah, beautiful. I want to be in this future. I want to be in this future now. And I want to integrate to this future scenario you're describing, for example, the social technology, the behavioral technology that guarantees that all stakeholders are represented in the room and that therefore people have this practice that they step into different roles and different voices representing those different stakeholders and people go through role reversals and switchovers so they can argue the point of view of those different stakeholders such that there is true individuated but also collective agency, mutualized agency of intelligence seeking on behalf of the whole. I can see this future in my eyes. Beautiful story. What would you bring to this, Carol, from your discipline and your experience and your expertise into that 2042 future art, design, or any other aspect that you wish to voice, please? From the platform of 2042, education is no longer charged. Education is free for all. Education is no longer that of those in power who only have the ability to pay to attend. What has happened is that there are hubs around the world in which people can at any time walk in and develop whatever skills or whatever knowledge that they require because they have chosen to go there because they know that it is free for them to attend. The actual payment at the end is what the students 
all people are wanting to do for society, for communities, for the enrichment and for the betterment of human from one place to another. The challenge is all countries agreeing that they would be involved in hub, multiple hubs of education that allows people to walk in and be able to sit or stand and communicate with any other hub at any time. So the boundaries of travel are not so demanding on people. They can go to where they can without the abhorrent natures that are associated with traveling long distances, which is something that was instigated in the 2020s. So in the 2042, this has come to be one of the signifiers of transferring information to young learners who will become world leaders or leaders in their disciplines. What that means is that there is more than just the topic areas anymore. It is the overarching view of what is required from everyone at any time to do with any specific topic. So interdisciplinary elements are vital and for the people to know that they can gravitate to the areas that they need to contribute to and be willing to be responsible for. So yes, responsibility of what is really upfront. What is it that they're joining and what is it they're hoping to achieve? So it's not necessarily a government as such, but more of we are here to help develop those areas that are not currently segmented or put in concrete to help others be able to evolve in the same way that they have been able to evolve to be able to participate. Participation is full. Participation is not limited because you are no longer concerned with you being better than another person. You are participating because you want life to be better. And that is one of the fundamental core elements of education for the future. You are describing a whole person, whole planet, life-giving, life-liberating educational actuality. And you're also describing in that future a reframe of the global economy. Because to have actualized this state of affairs, you, what you are literally describing is that we transitioned out of an extractive economy and have entered a paying forward economy. So people pay forward in their services. And this ridiculous paradigm where my daughter-in-law, who is not working because she is raising my granddaughter, is not viewed as though the work she does is valued in any monetary context in society, which is ridiculous. She is doing the most important job. She is doing, as far as I'm concerned, both selfishly and humanly, broadly, in, in the broadest sense, an even more important job than what my son is doing, which is leading a fantastic company, she is actually raising the next generation. But in today's world, we have so many services that are core and foundational for society that are taken for granted and are not compensated. So you are describing in the framing of education a world where we found a way to step back from the extractive paradigm, which goes full circle to where all have started us because the extractive paradigm was birthed also in the Industrial Revolution. 
And we are literally, therefore, liberating humans to live and learn to the fullest potential where to be in an educational institution is not to learn what happened in the past so that you can pass the exam, but rather you are forever living both into the past and into the future as a way of being on the frontier of your own discovery and emergence as a human being serving the broader, larger system that you are part of. I want to be in this future. I want to be in this future today. Thank you. We have said what we wanted to say. Is there any other parting wisdom that you wish to share? Or we will land it here, please. There is one thing from my side, if I may. It's more I just want to include this great planet in because... Say that again. You want to include what? The planet, this planet that we live on. I want to include her in here in the sense of if you look at how everything operates in nature, it has a design purpose. It is naturally sustainable. It has a genius. So if we want to understand how to do something well on planetary level, we need to connect more to that genius and to learn from it because it has all of the principles. One thing I realized when I was working as a marine biologist is all we're ever doing is discovering the genius of how it works. It already has the genius. Our job is to discover it and to apply it so that what we do ourselves is naturally aligned and not another artificial paradigm which goes out of balance. So that's the last. So yes and yes and yes. Whole person, whole planet, whole universe, whole universe education. Because, I mean, we call these universities. I always assumed that universities was the idea you're being introduced to universal life until I realized that it had a different context. (laughs) Thank you so much for this exploration into the future of education and the energy and passion that we hope will contage others in their transformational work in education. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Portals of Perception. If you're enjoying these dialogues, we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash portals. Visit portalsofperception.org for exclusive content. Please share this episode with a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.